Chapter 12, Conclusion of Magic, White and Black by Dr. Franz Hartmann, 1886. Quote, He to whom time is like eternity, and eternity like time, is free. Jakob Böhme. To picture the eternal and incomprehensible in forms, and to describe the unimaginable in words, is a task whose difficulty has been experienced by all who ever attempted it. The formless cannot be described in forms. It can only be represented by allegories, which can only be understood by those whose minds are open to the illumination of truth. The misunderstanding of allegorical expressions in the sacred books has led to religious wars, to the torturing, burning, and killing of thousands of innocent victims. It has caused the living wives of dead Hindus to be burned with the corpses of their husband. It has caused ignorant men and women to throw themselves before the wheels of the car of the juggernaut. It causes the endless quarrels between some 200 Christian sects. And while the truth unites all humanity into one harmonious whole, the misunderstanding of it produces innumerable discords and diseases. The Bible says, The secret things belong unto the Lord. And the Bhagavad Gita repeats the same truth in the following words, Those whose minds are attracted to my invisible nature have a great labor to encounter, because an invisible path is difficult to be found by corporeal beings. The greatest poets of the world have had occasion to regret the poverty of human language, which rendered it impossible to express the language of their hearts in words. And those whose minds have been fully opened to the knowledge of spiritual truths, the wisest of all men, such as Buddha, have left no written records of their doctrines. Perhaps their conceptions were too grand to be expressed in words, and can be understood only by those who feel as they felt, and whose hearts are open to the sunlight of divine illumination. Let us attempt to put the impressions intuitively received regarding the divine source of all being into language. Although we well know that language is inadequate to describe it, and an attempt to put that which cannot be grasped by the intellect into words will give rise to misconceptions in those who are unable to think with their hearts. Far in the unfathomable abyss of space, far beyond the reach of the imagination of man, unapproachable even by the highest and purest angel or thought, self-existent, eternal, resplendent in its own glory, is the Shining One, whose palpitating center is invisible fire, whose rays are light and life, pervading the universe to its utmost limits, penetrating every form and causing it to live and to grow. Their harmonious vibrations are undulating through space, filling all animate and inanimate beings with the substance of love. Meeting primordial matter in space, they form it into revolving globes and chain them together by love, manifesting itself as attraction and guiding them on in their restless revolutions. Penetrating into the hearts of animals and men, they create sensation and relative consciousness, cause the form to feel, to perceive and to know its surroundings, call into life the emotions of love and its reaction hate with all their attendant virtues and vices. 
penetrating deep into the hearts of men, they kindle there the divine fire, in whose light man may see the image of the Shining One, and know it to be himself. But it is beyond the power of man to describe in language that which cannot be described, to combine words so that the reader may form an intellectual conception of something for which no intellectual conception exists. For in the presence of the highest, the unthinkable, ideal, intellectual labor ceases, and spiritual adoration begins. Intellectual labor is a function which man shares with the animals, but the divine prerogative of spiritual man and his highest destiny is to live in eternal perception and adoration of the highest good, of which the intellect cannot conceive and for which we can find no name. In this eternal, universal principle is the source of all power. In it alone is magic power contained even to the extent of creating new worlds and to call a new universe of forms into existence. It is the only philosopher's stone and the only elixir of life or universal panacea and can be had everywhere and at any time without expense by everyone who knows how to seek for it. It can attain self-consciousness and self-knowledge only in the organism of man, because the lower animals are not yet far enough advanced to be used as its vehicles and instrument. But the man in whom it has awakened to life shares its attributes and obtains magic power, for he is a living temple of God. The man in whom God has not awoken is, as long as he remains in that condition, merely an intellectual animal, and having no spirit active within his heart, he can possess no spiritual or magical powers. Some modern philosophers, who say that man has no magical powers, are right from their own point of view, for the man known to external science is merely an intellectual animal, having no spiritual and therefore no magical power. The real man only begins to exist when he is reborn in the spirit. True philosophers have recognized this fact. Schopenhauer says, In consequence of the action of grace, the entire being of man becomes remodeled, so that he desires no longer anything of that for which he was craving heretofore, and becomes, so to say, a new man. Note Schopenhauer, Welt als Wille und Vorstellung. 1,625. Everything in nature has a threefold nature, and likewise the allegories of the sacred books of the East, as well as those of the West, have a threefold meaning, an exoteric, an esoteric, and a secret signification. The vulgar, the learned as well as the unlearned, can see only the exoteric side, which in the majority of cases is so absurd that its very absurdity should serve as a warning to people endowed with common sense not to accept these fables in their literal meaning. There is, however, nothing too absurd to attract the attention of the ignorant, and we see them therefore split into three classes, namely, first, into those who implicitly believe their literal meaning, Secondly, into those who reject them on account of their supposed absurdity, never suspecting a deeper meaning. And thirdly, into those who are irritated at their absurdity and valiantly fight the man of straw which they have themselves set up in their minds. 
Those who are willing to learn can be instructed, but they that believe that they already know refuse to be taught. For this reason, the legitimate guardians of the truth, the teachers of science and religion, like those who have no intellectual power, are often the last ones to recognize the truth. Those who are not able to think cannot be taught, and those who live entirely within the region of intellectual speculation reject the light of their own intuition. The esoteric meaning of symbols may be understood by those whose intellect is open to intuition and may be explained to all who do not reject the truth. But the secret meaning of the sacred symbols cannot be explained in words. It can be understood only by those who have entered the practical way. How can we enter the path? Only in practical experience is life. Petrified speculative science, moldy speculative philosophy, and dried-up speculative theology groan in the embrace of death. Humanity awakes from her slumber and asks them for the bread of wisdom, but receives only a stone. She turns to science, but science is silent, wraps herself up in her vanity and turns away. She turns to philosophy, and old philosophy answers, but her talk is an incomprehensible jargon and confuses matters still more. She turns to theology, but theology threatens the obnoxious questioner with hell and bids her to remain ignorant. But the people, on the whole, are no longer satisfied with such answers. They are no longer contented with the assertion that the truth is known to a few and that they themselves must remain ignorant they want to enjoy it, too. If we wish to enter the path to infinite life, the first requirement is to know. Knowledge is the perception and understanding of truth. We can only know that which we perceive. All knowledge arrived at by logic, however exact, is only negative knowledge, but not positive. For truth is spiritual and can be recognized only by spirit, by intellectual reasoning in mathematics, we can find out what a thing is not, but never what it actually is. We say that one and two added together make three, meaning that they can make nothing else but three, but what the three actually is still remains a mystery. We say that if we chemically combine sulfur and carbon, the result can be nothing else but a compound of sulfur and carbon. But for all that, we do not know what that combination is, as long as we have not perceived its attributes. There are two principal modes of perception, namely, seeing and feeling. Each of these modes, if unaccompanied by the other, is unreliable. Only if we simultaneously see and feel a thing do we know that it exists. Thousands of years have passed away since mankind first saw the sun and stars, and modern telescopes have brought them nearer to us. Nevertheless, our knowledge of these cosmic bodies and the conditions of life existing upon them consists merely of speculation and opinions which may be overthrown at any time when our means for observation are supplanted by better ones. We give names to the substances discovered by the spectroscope, but we will not know the true nature of the stars as long as we are not able to partake of their consciousness and feel the qualities of the life and characters embodied in their forms. For thousands of years, 
Mankind has intuitively felt the presence of the unknown. Those who felt the presence of the universal spirit know that it exists. Generations after generations have disappeared from the earth after spending their lives in vain efforts to know not God whose power they felt, but whom they could not see with their eyes, and even our greatest theologians seem to be very far from a true knowledge of God. Only when the mind of the regenerated man has become illuminated by divine wisdom will he be able to know the true God, for he will see his image within his own soul. If we are able to see and feel the external attributes of a thing, we may begin to understand what these qualities are, but we will, for all that, still be ignorant of its interior qualities and its true character. To know the latter, it will be necessary to enter into its spirit, and this can only be done by the spirit of man, not by his external senses. The spiritual principle in man, if once awakened to self-consciousness, has attributes and functions far superior to those of the external man. It has the power to perceive, to see, and to feel the internal qualities of things which are imperceptible to the external senses. It can identify itself with the object of its observation and partake of its consciousness. It becomes for the time being as one with that object and shares its feelings. It sees that object objectionally and partakes of its subjective sensations. Thus does a lover partake of the joys and sorrows of the object he loves, and feel as if he were one with it in spirit, although separated from it in the form. For love is the power by which such a divine state is attained. It penetrates all things, and coming from the center of all, it goes to the center. What is it that prevents us to love and to know all things but our own prejudices and predilections? We do not see these things as they are, but as we imagine them to be. He who desires to know all things should not look upon them with his own eyes, but with the eyes of God. He should not think the thoughts suggested by external appearances, but he should let the Divine Spirit do its thinking within his mind. To obtain true knowledge, we must render ourselves able to receive it. We must free our minds from all the intellectual rubbish that has accumulated there through the perverted methods of education of modern civilization. The more false doctrines we have learned, the more difficult will be the labor to make room for the truth, and it may take years to unlearn that which we have learned at the expense of a great deal of labor, money, and time. The Bible says that we must become like little children before we can enter the kingdom of truth. The principal thing to know is to know ourselves. If we know ourselves, we will know that we are to be the kings of the universe. The essential man is a son of God. He is something far greater, far more sublime, and far more powerful than the insignificant animal described as a man in our scientific works on anthropology. Well may man who knows his true nature be proud of his nobility and power. Well may the man known to external science be ashamed of his weakness. Well may the former consider himself superior to the gods, and the latter a worm of the earth, crawl into a corner and ask for the protection of a real man who is a god. 
The true man is a divine being, whose power extends as far as his thoughts can reach. The irrational man is a compound of semi-animal forces subject to their caprices and whims, with a spark of divine fire in him to enable him to control them, but which spark, in the great majority of cases, is left to smolder and vanish? The former is immortal, the latter lives a few years among the illusions of life. The former knows that he lives forever in the all. The latter expects to die, or perhaps to obtain a lease on his personal existence by the favor of some personal god who may permit him to carry his iniquities into a sphere in which only the pure can exist. Note Revelation 21 verse 27. There are three kinds of knowledge, the useful, the useless, and the harmful. The most useful knowledge is the one which relates to the essential nature of man, to his destiny and to his possibilities. There is no higher knowledge than the practical knowledge of religion. That is to say, the knowledge of all that relates to the spiritual, emotional, and physical nature of man. He who has this knowledge is necessarily the true physician for the soul as well as for the body, and he heals by the power of his spirit. An attempt to separate religion from science and the practice of morality from the practice of medicine leads to illusions of the most dangerous kind. The useless knowledge is the knowledge of, or rather the adherence to, illusions and falsehoods. It is no real knowledge, although it embraces a great deal of what is considered of great importance in civilized countries that men should know. The harmful knowledge consists in scientific attainments without any corresponding perception of the moral aspect of truth. It is only partial knowledge because it recognizes only a part of the truth. A high intellectual development without any corresponding growth of morality is a curse to mankind. Knowledge to be good must be illuminated by wisdom. Knowledge without wisdom is dangerous to possess. Misunderstanding and misapplication of truths are the source of suffering. The attainment of power is often not accompanied with any proper understanding how to apply that power wisely. The invention of the fulminates of mercury, of gunpowder, of nitroglycerin, has caused much suffering to a large part of humanity. Not that the substances applied, or the forces which are liberated are intrinsically evil, but their misapplication leads to evil results. If all men were intelligent enough to understand the laws which govern them, and wise enough to employ them for good purposes only, no evil results would follow. If we proceed a step further and imagine intellectual but wicked and selfish people possessed not only of the power to employ explosives, poisonous drugs, and medicines to injure others, but able to send their own invisible poisonous will to a distance, to leave at will the prison house of the physical body and go in their astral forms to kill or injure others, the most disastrous results would follow. Such forbidden knowledge has been and is sometimes possessed by people with criminal tendencies, a fact which is universally known in the East, and upon the possibility and actuality of such facts have been established on many occasions, and among others by many of the witch trials of the Middle Ages. 
Modern scientists may now laugh at these facts, but the doctors of law, of medicine, and of theology of their times were as sure of their knowledge then as their modern representatives are of their own opinions today. And the former had as many intellectual capacities as the latter. The only difference is that the former knew these facts, but gave a wrong explanation. The latter refused to examine them and give no explanation at all. Man is continually surrounded by unseen influences, and the astral plane is swarming with entities and forces which are acting upon him for good or for evil according to his good or evil inclinations. At the present state of human evolution, man has a physical body, which is admirably adapted to modify the influence from the astral plane and to shelter him against the monsters of the deep. If the physical body is in good health, it acts as an armor, and moreover, man has the power, by a judicious exercise of his will, to so concentrate the odic aura by which he is surrounded, as to render his armor impenetrable. But if by bad health, by a careless expenditure of vitality, or by the practice of mediumship, he disperses through space the odic emanations belonging to his sphere, his physical armor will become weakened and unable to protect him. He becomes the victim of elementaries and elemental forces. His mental faculties will lose their balance, and sooner or later he will, like the symbolical Adam and Eve, know that he is naked, and exposed to influences which he cannot repel. Such is the result for which those ignorantly crave who wish to obtain knowledge without corresponding morality. To supply the ignorant or weak with powers of destruction would be like providing children with gunpowder and matches for play. And now, a word from our sponsors. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Well, we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated. We thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Only an intelligent and well-balanced mind can discriminate properly and dive into the hidden mysteries of nature. Only the pure in heart can see God. He who has reached the stage need not search for an adept to instruct him. The higher intelligences will be attracted to him and become his instructor. In the same manner as he may be attracted by the beauty of an animal or of a flower. A harp does not invent sound but obeys the hand of a master. And the more perfect the instrument, the sweeter may be the music. A diamond does not originate light, but reflects it, and the purer the diamond, the purer will be its luster. Man does not invent original thought, will, and intelligence. 
He is a mirror in which the thought of God and the imagery of nature is reflected, an instrument through which the eternal will or the animal will expresses itself, a pearl filled with a drop of water from the universal ocean of intelligence. Quote, if you eat from the tree of true knowledge, you will surely die. Your personality will be swallowed up by a realization of the fact that personal isolation is only an illusion and that you are one with the all. But as your personality dies, a greater truth opens before you, and you become not only godlike, but God. He who ascends to the top of a mountain need not inquire for somebody to bring him pure air. Pure air surrounds him there on all sides. The realm of wisdom is not limited, and he whose mind is receptive will not suffer from want of divine influx to feed his inspiration. The school in which the occultist graduates has many classes, each class representing a life. The days of vacation may arrive before the lesson is learned, and what has been learned may be forgotten during the time of vacation, but still the impression remains. And a thing once learned is easily learned again. This accounts for the different talents with which men are endowed and for their propensities for good and for evil. No effort is lost, every cause creates a corresponding effect, no favors are granted, no injustice takes place. Blind to bribes and deaf to appeals is the law of justice, dealing out to everyone according to his merits or demerits. But he who has no selfish desire for reward, and no cowardly fear of punishment, but who dares to act rightly because he cannot do wrong, identifies himself with the law and in the equilibrium of the law he will find his power. The second requirement is to will. If we do not want to receive the truth, we will not obtain it, because it rests in the spirit, and the spirit is a power that exercises the universal law of attraction. It attracts the mind that corresponds to its vibrations and is repulsed by discords. Men believe that they love the truth, but there are few that desire it. They love only welcome truths. Those that are unwelcome are usually rejected. Opinions which flatter the vanity and are in harmony with accustomed modes of thought are accepted. Strange truths are often regarded with astonishment and driven away from the door. Men are often afraid of that which they do not know, and, not knowing the truth, they are afraid to receive it. They ask new truths for their passports, and if they do not bear the stamp of some fashionable authority, they are looked upon as illegitimate children and are not permitted to grow. How shall we learn to love the truth? By being obedient to the law. How can we become convinced of its goodness? By doing our duty. Irrational man asks for external proofs, but true man requires no other certificate for the truth but its own appearance. There can be no difference between speculative and practical knowledge. An opinion based upon mere speculation is no knowledge. Knowledge can only be attained by speculation if the speculation is accompanied by experience. Those who want to know the truth must practice it. Those who cannot practice it will not know it. Speculations without practice can only lead to doubtful opinions. 
Man can have no actual desire for a thing which he does neither feel nor see, and which he therefore not knows. How can we love a thing of which we know not whether it is good or evil, whether it will benefit or injure us if we approach it? Many followers of the Church profess to love God and have not the remotest conception of what God is. Many profess to love Christ and despise and reject Him if they meet Him in man. Such a love of God in Christ is a pretense and an illusion. It exists only in the brain and not in the heart. We can only love that of which we know that it is good, because we feel it to be so. And where else could we feel the presence of God except within our own heart? To learn to desire God means therefore to enter a mental state in which we can feel the presence of the divine principle within our own heart. To learn to know God means to learn to know our own divine self. To enter a state in which universal truth may come to our direct perception, no intellectual labor but spiritual development is required. We must become master of our own thoughts and desires, and be able to sink our thoughts into the invisible center of all. We do not have far to go in search of that center. It exists within the heart of each human being, for the soul of each human being is an exact image of the soul of the universe, and as the great spiritual sun exists in the center of the universe, likewise the image of that sun exists within the heart of each human being. If we only permit this divine light to shine within our own soul, we will know the truth, for the truth is only one, and the one existing within our own heart is identical with the one existing within the center of the universe. If we desire to see the pure light of the terrestrial sun, the atmosphere must not be obscured by clouds and fogs. If we desire to see the eternal light of the spiritual sun existing within the heart, the realm of the soul must not be clouded by material desires. We must, by the power of our will, dispel the fogs and mists created by the vapors coming from the material plane. We must become our own masters in our own house. To do this requires effort and perseverance, and the average investigator, finding it easier to accept ready-made creeds than to educate his spiritual faculties, usually remains satisfied with his own superstitions, or argues himself into a belief that spiritual causes cannot be known. Men do not seriously desire the truth, because they cannot estimate what they do not know, and they do not know it because they cannot reach what they do not seriously desire. Mere curiosity or a wish to learn to know the truth at our leisure, without neglecting the claims of the elementary kingdom composing our soul, cannot attract the spirit. Man is chained to the kingdom of the elementals with a thousand chains. The inhabitants of his soul appear before him in their most seductive forms. If they are driven away, they change their masks and renew their petitions in some other form. But the chains by which man is bound are forged by his own desire. His vices do not cling to him against his will. He clings to them and they will desert him as soon as he rises up in the strength and dignity of his manhood and shakes them off. There is a method by which we may, without any active effort, obtain that which we desire, and this is that 
we should desire nothing except what the Divine Spirit desires within our own heart. The third requirement, therefore, to dare. We must dare to act and throw off our desires instead of waiting patiently until they desert us. We must dare to tear ourselves loose from accustomed habits, irrational thoughts, and selfish considerations, and from everything that is an impediment to our recognition of the truth. We must dare to conquer ourselves and to conquer the world, dare to face the ridicule of the ignorant, the vilifications of bigots, the haughtiness of the vain, the contempt of the learned, and the envy of the small. Dare to proclaim the truth if it is useful to do so, and dare to be silent if taunted by the fool. Note Proverbs 26.4 We must dare to face poverty, suffering, and isolation, and dare to act under all circumstances according to our highest conception of truth. All this might be easily accomplished if the will of man were free, if man were his own master and not bound by the chains of the soul. But man is a relative being, and as such his will can only be free to a certain extent. It can only enjoy a relative liberty as long as it is a slave to desire. Man may perform certain acts and leave others undone if he chooses, but his internal desire determines his choice and man acts in obedience to it. A man who is free of external desires has the power to will that which his nature does not desire, and not to will that to which the desires of that nature attract him. To make the will free, action is required, and each action strengthens the will, and each unselfish deed increases its power. In unity is power. To render our will powerful, we may unite it with the will of others. And if the desires of the others are different from ours, our will thereby becomes free from our own desires. In action is strength. If we oppose our will to the will of others, by acting against the desires of others, we increase its strength, but we become thereby isolated from others. There is only one universal power of will because divinity is whole. It may act in the direction for good and in the direction for evil, but its action for good is the strongest because it emanates from the eternal source of all good. This willpower being the collective sum of all willpower in the universe is the power that moves the worlds. It is necessarily immeasurably stronger than any individual willpower can possibly be because the whole is larger than the part and the infinite greater than the finite. He who unites his own will with the universal will becomes powerful. He who exercises his will by opposing it may become strong, but while the former attains eternal life with the whole, the latter causes his own destruction, as he will finally be crushed by the opposing force, which is immeasurably stronger than he. Dare to obey the law, and you will become your own master and the Lord over all. Philosophical courage is a quality for which men are respected everywhere. The Red Indian 
prides himself at his indifference to physical pain. The faker undergoes tortures to strengthen his willpower. The civilized soldier is eager to prove his contempt for danger and to measure his strength with the strength of the enemy. But there are deeds to perform that require a courage of a superior kind. It requires only momentary outbursts of power or temporary efforts of will to perform a daring deed on the physical plane, and after it is accomplished, it is followed by satisfaction and rest. But in the realm of the soul, there is no rest for those who have not succeeded in eradicating that which is evil. A continual and unremitted strain is needed to keep the emotions subjugated, and this strain is rendered still more fatiguing by the circumstances that it depends entirely on your will whether or not we will endure it, and that if we relax the bridle and allow our emotions to run free and disorderly, sensual gratification is the result. It requires a courage of the highest order to act under all circumstances in obedience to the law. Long may the battle last, but each victory strengthens the will. Each act of submission renders it more powerful until at last the combat is ended and over the battlefield where the remnants of the slain desires are exposed to the decomposing actions of the elements hovers the spiritual eagle rising towards the sun and enjoying the serene tranquility of the ethereal realm the only true way to obtain courage is to rise above fear metals are purified by fire and the spirit is purified by suffering only when the molten mass has cooled can we judge of the progress of the purification. Only when a victory over the emotions is gained and peace follows after the struggle can the spirit rest to contemplate and realize the beauty of eternal truth. In vain will men attempt to listen to the voice of truth during the clash of contending desires and opinions. Only in the silence that follows the storm can the voice of truth be heard. The fourth requirement to the recognition of the truth is therefore to be silent. This means that we must not allow any desire to speak in our heart, but only the voice of truth, because the truth is a jealous goddess and suffers no rivals. He who selects wisdom for the bride of his soul must woo her with his whole heart and dismiss the concubines from the bridal chamber of his soul. He must clothe her in the purity of his affection and ornament her with the gold of his love, for wisdom is modest. She does not adorn herself but waits until she is adorned by her lover. She cannot be bought with money nor with promises. Her love is only gained by acts of devotion. Science is only the handmaid of wisdom, and he who makes love to the servant will be rejected by the mistress. But he who sacrifices his whole being to wisdom will be united with her. The Bhagavad Gita says, He who thinketh constantly of me, his mind, undiverted by any other subject, will find me. I will at all times be easily found by a constant devotion to me. The Christian mystic Jakob Burma, an illuminated seer, expressed the same truth in the form of a dialogue between the Master and his disciple as follows. The disciples said to the Master, how can I succeed in arriving at that supersensual life in which I may see and hear the Supreme? The Master answered, 
If you can only for a moment enter in thought into the formless, where no creature resides, you will hear the voice of the Supreme. The disciples said, Is this far or near? The Master answered, It is in yourself, and if you can command only for one hour the silence of your desires, you will hear the inexpressible words of the Supreme. If your own will and self are silent in you, the perception of the Eternal will be manifest through you. God will hear and see and talk through you. Your own hearing, desiring, and seeing prevents you to see and hear the Supreme. Note Jakob Burma, Theosophical Writings, Book 6. These directions are identical with those prescribed by the practice of Raja Yoga, by which the holy men of the East unite their minds with the formless and infinite. Religious services are calculated to elevate the mind into the region of the formless, and in fact all religious systems can have no other legitimate object than to teach methods how to attain such states. Churches are not worthy the name of church, which means a spiritual union, unless they serve as schools in which the science of uniting oneself with the eternal fountain of life is practically taught. But it is easier to allow one's mind to revel among the multifarious forms and attractions of the material plane, and to listen to the siren song of the elementals inhabiting the soul, than to enter the apparently dark caves of the formless, where at first no sound is heard in the eternal stillness of night, but the echo of our voice, but where alone true power resides. It is easier to let our minds be controlled by thoughts that come and go without our bidding than to hold fast to a thought and command it to remain, and to close the doors of the soul to all thoughts that have not the seal of truth impressed upon their forms. And this is the reason why the majority of men and women prefer the illusions of finite life to the eternal realities of the infinite why they prefer sufferings to happiness and ignorance to a knowledge of truth. To be silent means to let no other language be heard within the heart but the language of God, to listen to the voice of divine wisdom speaking within the heart, but this state will be arrived at only after the storm of the passions, the battle of desires, and the conflict of the intellectual forces is over. He who has learned to know, to will, to dare, and to be silent is upon the true path that leads to immortal life and will know how to practice interior meditation or yoga. But by those who move merely in the sensual plane or whose minds are concentrated upon external things of the physical or intellectual plane, even the meaning of these words will not be understood. Various instructions are given in the books of the East in regard to the practice of this interior meditation, but they all teach the same thing, namely a concentration of man's higher consciousness to a single point within his own center. In the Upnakata, the following directions are given. Breathe deep and slow, and concentrate your unwavering attention into the midst of your body, into the region of the heart. The lamp in your body will then be protected against wind and motion, and your whole body will become illuminated. You must withdraw all your senses within yourself like a turtle. 
which withdraws its members within the shell. Enter your own heart and guard it, and Brahma will enter it like a fire or a stroke of lightning. In the midst of a big fire in your heart will be a small flame, and in the center of it will be Atma. Heracarchus, an abbot of a convent upon the Mount Athos, gives to his monks the following directions to acquire the power of true clairvoyance. Sit alone in your room, after having the door locked against intrusion. Concentrate your mind upon the region of the navel, and try to see with that. Try to find the seat of your heart. Sink your consciousness into your heart, where the center of power resides. At first you will find nothing but darkness, but if you continue for days and nights without fatigue, you will see the light and experience inexpressible things. When the spirit once recognizes his own center in the heart, he will know what he never knew before, and there will be nothing hidden before his sight, whether in heaven nor upon the earth. Let us compare with these statements one received from an unlearned person who possesses the power to see interior truths. He says, Sink your thoughts downward into the center of your being, and you will find there a germ which, if continually nourished by pure and holy thoughts, will grow into a power that will extend and ramify through all parts of your body. Your hands and feet and your interior organs will become alive. A sun will appear within your heart and illuminate your whole being. In this light you will see the present, the past, and the future, and by its aid you will attain the true knowledge of self. Note J. Kerning, Key. Man is himself a thought, pervading the ocean of mind. If his soul is in perfect accord with the truth, the truth will unite itself with his soul. A talented musician will not need a scientific calculation of the vibrations of sound to know whether a melody which he hears is melodious or not. A person who is one with the truth will recognize himself in everything that is true. What is sound? If everything is fundamentally will, sound can be nothing else but a manifestation of will. Will may act either relatively, unconsciously, or consciously, or even in a self-conscious state. Sound manifests the same attributes. The noise made by the knock of a hammer carries with itself no emotions or intelligence. It can awaken them only by means of association of ideas. But a piece of music or a song carries with it the qualities with which it has been endowed by the musician or the singer. Music is a language that speaks to the heart without any previous agreement as to what sounds are meant to signify certain words, as is done by telegraphing. Music produces in every receptive soul the sentiments that its melodies are intended to represent, and the more the music is a true representation of these sentiments, the more will this be the case. Likewise, there is sound carrying intelligence. The words spoken by a person awaken corresponding thoughts in the mind of an intelligent person, and they will be impressive in proportion as they are true. If he who tells a lie does not at least for the time being imagine it to be true, his words will act at best upon the imagination, but not upon the will. A good actor knows that he must imagine himself to be the person whose part he plays if he wants to produce the desired effect. 
intelligent speech carries with it the power to induce intelligent thoughts in an intelligent being, as the sunshine carries with it life to the seeds in the soil. There is a still higher form of sound. It is not known to everybody. It is the self-conscious divine word that speaks within the heart of the awakened. The spirit is like a breath. To the eloquent speaker, being inspired by the truth of what he says, words will come without consideration. They form themselves in his soul and not in his brain. In him who is conscious of speaking the truth, it is not so much the man that speaks as rather the truth speaking through him, and he may inspire his hearers with his own sentiments, even if they do not understand his language, because the will emanating from him is endowed with his own emotional attributes." Every sound is vitalized if it comes from a living source, but it can have no higher vitality than the source from which it originates. A sound produced by the striking of a fiddle bow upon a tuning fork can manifest no higher consciousness than that of the tuning fork, no matter how it is treated mechanically. A merely mechanical noise cannot produce living effects, no more than a piece of dead wood can cause a tree to grow in the soil. It cannot be the carrier of life unless it comes from a living being. The attempts that have been made to vitalize sound by merely mechanical means and to cause it to act with life and intelligence have failed on account of a misunderstanding of that fundamental law of nature, according to which forms do not produce principles, but are merely vehicles or instruments for their manifestation. If I want to visualize anything, I can only vitalize it with my own vitality, having no other vitality at my command, nor can I cause the universal principle of life to vitalize anything according to my will, unless I have obtained command over it by becoming divine. Everybody is continually vitalizing himself and the words which he speaks but only a self-conscious divine spirit could spiritualize inanimate things. The word of God, being God itself, can vitalize sound. It is the creative power in the universe. He in whom the divine has not become self-conscious cannot command that power. There is, therefore, no danger that the world would be exploded if, quote, the adepts were to let the secret out as to how the trick is done. Such a revelation would be use useless to mankind as to tell a beggar how he could invest his money if he had any to invest. The will of a person may vitalize apparently inanimate objects as is often done at spiritistic seances, but in that case it is accomplished by its action upon living invisible beings and without any conscious action of the medium. Therefore, the wonders of the mechanical application of living sound, if any such have ever been performed, can be due only to mediumship. To act consciously and intelligently upon the elemental powers of nature requires the possession of an intelligent and self-conscious power, the magic power of the spiritual will of an adept. Merely mechanical combinations can produce nothing but merely mechanical results. Natural forces are subject to natural law, and therefore intellectual man, acting in accordance with natural law, can make them subservient to his purposes by establishing the conditions under which they will act. But the divine word of God is above nature, and above any conditions that man can establish. Man can govern it in no 
other way than by becoming one with divine law. But then he ceases to be a man and becomes a god, governing his own self and all the laws of his nature. Note, it is an absolute impossibility to transform matter into motion or sound, or sound into life or spirit, because the seven forms of eternal nature are eternal and unchangeable. All that can be changed is their mode of action. Darkness cannot be changed into light, although it may be penetrated by it. Neither does a red-hot iron change into light, although light becomes manifest therein by means of the heat. Quote, each of the original forms of eternal nature retains forever its own center. Yakabuma, threefold life. It is true that each of the seven principles contains potentially the other six, and that the higher may be awakened or liberated in the lower. But this can only be done by the action of the higher inducing the corresponding latent higher principle to become active within the lower. Merely mechanical motion cannot call life or consciousness into action in a form without the action of a living and conscious power to act upon the life and consciousness latent therein. Every form in nature is a symbol of an idea and represents a sign or a letter. A succession of such symbols forms a language, and the totality of all forms in nature is the language of nature. He who is a true child of nature, that means to say, he whose will is pure and whose mind free of error, will understand the language of nature and know the character of everything. His mind will be like a clear mirror, wherein the attributes of natural things are reflected and enter the field of his consciousness. Such a language means a radiation of the essence of things into the center of the human mind, and a radiation from that center into the universal ocean of mind. Man, in a state of purity, being an image and an external expression of the highest divine principle, is able to reflect and reproduce the highest truth in its original purity, and man's expression ought, therefore, to be a perfect reproduction or echo of the impressions which he receives. But average man, being immersed in matter, as a result of a combination of principles, on a lower scale of evolution, receives the pure original rays only in a state of refraction, and can therefore reproduce them only in an imperfect condition. He has wandered away from the sun of truth, and beholding it from a distance, it appears to him only as a small star that may perhaps vanish from sight. Everything in nature has its name and he who has the power to call a thing by its proper name can make it subservient to his will. But the proper name of a thing is not the arbitrary name given to it by man, but the expression of the totality of its powers and attributes, because the powers and attributes of each being are intimately connected with its means of expression, and between both exists the most exact proportion in regard to measure, time, and condition. There is only one genuine and interior language for man, the symbols of which are natural and must be intelligible to all, and this language is a direct communication of thought. This interior language is the parent of the exterior one, and being caused by the radiation of the first cause which is unity, and with whom all men are one, it follows that if the original irradiation of the supreme ray were existing in all men in its original purity, all men would understand the same language, and also the same exterior one, because the latter is the external expression of the former. 
In fact, this original language still exists, but few understand it, and none can learn it except by the process of interior evolution. The interior language breathes, so to say, spirit, while the exterior one is only a succession of sounds. Each word in that interior language is the character of the thing itself, a sign and symbol which men cultivate unknowingly. Each is the center of each being, and whoever reaches that center is in possession of the word and the sign. These symbols are the essential characteristics which distinguish one individual or group of individuals from others. By these symbols are harmonious souls attracted, and by them one artist recognizes another artist in beholding his works without seeing his person. Men have ever been desiring a universal language. Such a universal language cannot be arbitrarily constructed, or, if so constructed, would be more difficult to learn than any other. True language must express the harmony of the soul with the nature of things, and as long as there is distinction of character and disharmony, there can be no universal harmonious language. But if there is a universal language of nature, there is also a universal language of God, and this divine language is the word of God that speaks within the heart of the awakened. It is the voice of the truth itself that speaks the word. And if you cannot hear that voice, you are not called to teach, because it would then not be the truth speaking through your mouth, but the devil of your own conceited self. He who lives in the spirit of this world and in his sins cannot truly teach anyone. He who does not live in the spirit can have no spiritual life and cannot impart it to others. He may repeat like a parrot what he has heard, or tell what he has read in books. He may say what he fancies to be true, but he is not an instrument for the manifestation of truth. The only true teacher is the truth, the word, the Christ. He says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will have life eternal. He does not say, go to this person or that professor and get from him a description of what he thinks how the light is supposed to look but he advises us to follow him and find the true understanding ourselves. Only when all the bookmakers on theosophical subjects will be in possession of the living truth and of self-knowledge in regard to what they are writing about will we have a true divine science. Only when all the ministers of the church will become ministers and servants of God so that God may speak through them will we have a true religion taught. There is a threefold expression of the divine principle, a physical, an intellectual, and a divine word. The first is the language of nature, the second the language of art, the third one is power. Each thought is represented by a certain allegorical sign, each being is a characteristic symbol, and a living exterior image of its interior state. Each body is the symbol of an invisible and corresponding power, and man, in whom the highest powers are contained, is the most noble symbol of nature, the first and most beautiful letter in the alphabet of earth. For every thought there is an outward expression, and if we have a thought which we cannot express by symbols, it does not follow that such symbols do not exist, but that we are unacquainted with them. A word or a language is the expression of thought and to be perfect it must give perfect expression to the thought it is intended to convey. 
By giving a false expression to thought, the power of language is lost. In our present state of civilization, words are often used more than for the purpose of concealing than revealing thought. Lying is therefore disgraceful and involves a loss of power and subsequent degradation. To give pure and perfect expression to thought is white magic. To act upon the imagination so as to create false impressions is witchcraft, deception, and falsehood. Such witchcraft is practiced every day and almost in every station of life, from the priest in the pulpit who wheedles his audience into a belief that he or his church possesses the keys of heaven, down to the merchant who cheats with his goods, and to the old maid who secures a husband by the means of artificial teeth and false hair down to the physician who makes a living by exciting a morbid imagination in his patients and persuading them that they are really sick. Such practices are publicly denounced and silently followed. They will lead to a universal disappearance of faith and trust. They will necessarily lead to active evil and bring destruction upon the nation that allows them to grow, because as the power of good increases by practice, in the same manner increases the power of evil. Man's mission is to do good. That means to do that which is most useful for his development. By doing good, sensual matter is eliminated. His material constitution will become more and more refined, and his interior illuminated by the light of wisdom, until even his physical body may assume the attributes of the astral form and man himself be a living soul. Therein alone lies the secret of eternal beauty and youth, the true elixir of life. By doing evil, he attracts to himself the unintelligent and material principles of nature, the elements of evil, his higher principles become more and more material and heavy until dragged into the mire of matter by his own weight. He is unable to rise to the light. He becomes metaphysically petrified, and his power of intuition is lost. Men's actions are his writings. By putting his thoughts into action, he expresses them and records them in the book of life. He writes them all over his body and his face. They will appear in the luster of his eyes and in the grace of his movements. An angelic soul cannot fail to impress its beauty upon the form. Evil acts are followed by a degradation of character, producing an increased corporification of sensual elements and an incrustation of the soul. Selfish desires bleach the hair before their time, bend the back, wrinkle the face, and are the cause of endless ills. For all of which there is no other remedy but goodness of will. Good actions dissolve existing incrustations produced by evil deeds and re-establish the soul in its former condition. Repentance, unless followed by action, is useless. It is like the inflammation caused by a thorn in the flesh. It causes pain by gathering to its assistance the vital forces of the body, but unless the thorn is removed by the active intervention of the individual, an abscess and putrefaction will be the result. Man's acts are his creations. They give form to his thoughts. The motive endows them with character. The will furnishes them with life. An intention 
is useless as long as it is not put into action. A sign, a letter, or a word is useless unless it conveys a meaning which is realized by him who employs it. A symbol represents an idea, but no symbol can be efficacious unless it is intellectually applied. The most potent magical signs are useless to him who cannot realize what they mean, while to him who is well-versed in occult science, a single point, a line, or any geometrical figure may convey a vast meaning. Let us, in conclusion, attempt to explain exoterically and esoterically a few of the most important magical signs. We may succeed to a certain extent in giving these explanations in words, but their secret spiritual meaning cannot be expressed in language. Language can merely attempt to guide the reader into a region of thought in which he may be able to perceive the secret meaning with the eyes of the spirit. The Pentagram or the Five-Pointed Star In its external appearance, it is merely a geometrical figure, found everywhere as a trademark or ornament. Superstitious and credulous people once believed that if it were drawn upon the doors of their houses, it would protect them against the intrusions of sorcerers and the witch. In its esoteric signification, the four lower triangles represent the four elementary forces of nature, and as the lines of each triangle are intimately connected or identical with those forming the other lines, the sum of these lines forming only one broken line without any interruption, likewise the four lower elements are intimately connected and identical with the fifth element, the quintessence of all things, situated at the top of the figure representing the head, the seat of intelligence in man. The spiritual knowledge of the five-pointed star is identical with its practical application. Let us beware that the figure is always well drawn, leaving no open space, through which the enemy can enter and disturb the harmony existing in the pentagon in the center. Let us keep the figure always upright, with the topmost triangle pointing to heaven, for it is the seat of reason and wisdom, and if the figure is reversed, ignorance and evil will be the result. Let the lines be straight, so that all the triangles will be harmonious and of equal size, so that the symbol will grow without any abnormal development of one principle at the cost of another. Then the lower triangles will send their quintessence to the top, the seat of intelligence, and the top will supply the lower triangles with power and stimulate them to grow. Then, when the time of probation and development is over, the triangles will be absorbed by the pentagon in the center and form into a square within the invisible circle connecting the apices of the triangles, and our destiny will be fulfilled. There is no higher duty for man to perform than to keep the five-pointed spiritual star intact. It will be his protection during life and his salvation in the hereafter. The Double Triangle, or Six-Pointed Star This is one of the most important magical signs, and spiritually applied, it invests man with power. Its exoteric meaning is merely two triangles joined together so that they partially cover each other, while the apex of one points upwards and the apex of the other downward. It is sometimes surrounded by a circle or by a snake biting its tail, and sometimes with a tau in the middle. Its esoteric meaning is very extensive. 
It represents, among other things, the descent of spirit into matter and the ascension of matter to spirit, which is continually taking place within the circle of eternity, represented by the snake, the symbol of wisdom. Six points are seen in the star, but the seventh cannot be seen. Nevertheless, the seventh point must exist, although it has not become manifest, because without a center there could be no six-pointed star, nor any other figure existing. But who can describe in words the secret or spiritual significance of the six-pointed star and its invisible center? Who can intellectually grasp and describe the beauties and truths which it represents. Only he who can practically apply this sign will grasp its full meaning. Knowing that the sign practically means to realize the nature of God and the laws of eternal nature, it means to know the process of evolution and involution going on within the microcosm of man and corresponding to those of the macrocosm of nature. It means to possess the power to enter within one's own interior soul and to behold the majesty of God in his light. It means to forget one's own self and the world of illusions and to be absorbed in the depths of eternity where thought ceases and only adoration exists. To him who cannot realize within his heart the divine mysteries of nature, the blinding light shining from the center of the figure has no existence. But the enlightened sees in that invisible center the great spiritual sun, the heart of the cosmos, from which love and light and life are radiating forever. He sees the seven primordial rays of that light shining into invisible matter and forming visible worlds upon which men and animals live and die and are happy or discontented according to their conditions. He sees how by the breath of that invisible center, suns and stars, planets and satellites are evolved, and how, if the day of creation of forms is over, it reabsorbs them into its bosom. Verily, the six-pointed star is a most potent magical sign, and it requires the wisdom of God to understand it, the omnipotent power of the one life to apply it to its fullest extent. In its external signification, the Christian cross is a symbol of torture and death. The sight of a cross calls up in the mind of the pious the memory of a historical event said to have taken place in Palestine some 2,000 years ago when a noble, good, and just man was executed as a criminal upon a cross. If the element of hate is predominating in the soul organization of the Christian beholding the cross, its sight may call into action very unchristian feelings about the wickedness of the Jews. The internal impression caused by the sight of the cross will differ according to the standpoint from which we behold it. The esoteric meaning of the cross is very ancient, and the cross has existed as a secret symbol probably thousands of years ago before the Christian era. The philosophical cross represents, among other things, the principle of matter and that of spirit intersecting each other, forming the quaternary which, when it is inscribed in the square, forms the basis of knowledge for the occultist. The horizontal line represents the animal principle, for the heads of animals are bowed to the earth. Man is the only being upon the globe who stands erect. The divine principle within him keeps him upright, and therefore the perpendicular line is the symbol of his divinity. 
The cross represents man who has acted against the law and thereby transformed himself into an instrument for his own torture. From the beginning of his existence as a ray of the divine spiritual sun, he represented a perpendicular line cutting in the direction of the universal will of the source from which he emanated in the beginning. As the distance from that source increased, and as the ray entered into matter, it deviated from the originally straight line and became broken, creating thereby a division in its own essence and making two parts out of the original unity, thus establishing in matter a separate will, acting not in accordance with universal law but even in opposition to it. If man follows again the dictates of the law, he will then be taken from the cross and resume his former position. Quote, to take up one's cross means to sacrifice one's own desires to the rule of divine law. By doing so, the evil and animal desires remain crucified and die, but the divine element will be resurrected and enter the light. Who can know the practical spiritual signification of the cross except he who has been nailed thereon and suffered the pangs of crucifixion of thought and desire and of the mystical death? The external Christian sees only the wooden cross, but he whose spiritual perception is open sees the living cross in its glory, sublimely stands that cross upon the mountain of the living faith. Magnificent is its aspect. Far into space shines the light, radiating from its center and illuminating the darkness with its beneficent rays which give life to all who behold it. Rise, O man! up to your divine dignity, so that you may see the true cross, the true light, not the dead wooden cross, the emblem of ignorance and suffering, nor the glittering cross made of brass, the emblem of vanity, sectarianism, and superstition, but the living golden cross, the emblem of wisdom which each true brother of the golden and rosy cross carries deeply buried within his own heart. This cross is the full-grown tree of life and of knowledge, bearing the fruits of salvation and immortality, the dispenser of life, the protector against evil. He who knows practically the true mystery of the cross is acquainted with the highest wisdom. He who is adorned with the true cross is safe from all danger. Infinite power of the cross. In thee is wisdom revealed. Buried deep, deep in the realm of matter is thy foot, teaching us patience. High, high into heaven reaches thy crown, teaching us faith. Lifted by hope and extended by charity are thy arms. Light and sunshine surround thee. Link upon link, the chain of creation encircles the cross. Worlds within worlds, forms within forms, illusions upon illusions surround it like clouds and nebulous mists. But in the center is the reality in which is hidden the jewel of priceless value, the truth. Let the dew of heaven, which comes from the true cross, descend into your hearts and penetrate into your soul and body, so that it may crystallize into form. Then will the darkness within your mind disappear. The veil of matter will be rent, and before your spiritual vision will stand revealed the angel of truth. The present material age is ever ready to reject without examination the symbols of the past whose meaning it cannot realize because it knows them not. 
Engaged in the pursuit of material pleasure, it loses sight of its true interest and exchanges spiritual wealth for worthless baubles. Losing sight of this destiny, man runs after a shadow, while others embitter their lives for the purpose of propitiating an angry God and to buy from him happiness in a life of which they know nothing. Ruled by fear, many bow before the Moloch of superstition and ignorance, while others willfully shut their eyes to the light of divine reason and madly rush into the arms of a dead and cold material science to perish in her stony embrace. But the wise whose far-seeing perception reaches beyond the narrow circle of his material surroundings and beyond the short span of time which embraces his life on earth, knows that it is in his own power to control his future destiny. He raises the magic wand of his will and quiets the tempests raging in the astral plane. The emotions which were rushing to his destruction obey him and execute his orders, and he walks safely upon the waters under whose calm surface is hidden the abyss of death, while above his head shines the bright constellation formed of truth, knowledge, and power, whose center is wisdom and whose germs can be found in the spiritual consciousness of every human being. The End Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk